Hello, and welcome to What We May Be, Race and Education. Last week's episode looked at some of the foundations of education. In this week's episode, we're going to take a closer look at how the past and the present of education intersect. We'll be looking at the journey from student to educator, the evolution of an educational program, and how the pandemic is changing how we teach in educational institutions. Our interview guests this week are Caitlin Honig, Marquisha Dominguez, and Desdemona Chang. Let's get started. Hi, Desdemona. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, my name is Desdemona Chang. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers. I am a freelance stage director um, based in Seattle and Ashland, Oregon, sort of between both cities. Uh, sort of got my start in theater pretty late in life and, um, you know, was going to be a biology major and kind of pivoted at the last minute to, to work in performing arts. And I uh, went to school at the University of Washington, where I got my master's degree in directing and have been pretty much um, working uh, as an independent freelance director for the last 15 or so years. That's a nutshell. <laughs> That's a really brief <laughs> nutshell of my bio. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I want to talk about your experience as a student. What, what was it like growing up? What was your experience like? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think if you were to ask me what my my experiences were like was like as a student um in my early years uh in grade school i would say a lot of that was um a feeling of disorientation and otherness um so i'm an immigrant i was born in taiwan and i came to america when i was like pretty young right like three and a half four years old but my my earliest memories are of arriving in this country um and even though I have very, very vague, very, very vague memories of being in Taiwan as a young, mm -hmm. like, an, like an infant, pretty much, um, my, my most formative memories are of landing in the U.S., um, of going to McDonald's for the first time, going to school in America, and feeling like I didn't understand the rules of how school worked. Um, things, things that I never really thought about. I mean, I guess most kids don't think about, right? Like rules of the playground, like recess. And like handball and like standing in line and, you know, duck, duck, goose. And I would, I remember watching these kids play these games and me kind of not understanding, like, how did, you, how do you know the rules of engagement? How did you guys pick this up? And, and all the girls happen to all know the same, like double Dutch jump rope, right? Chance mm -hmm. or like the Miss Mary Mac chance. Um, and I was just so baffled that there's an entire, culture of communication that I was uh, not privy to. So I think a lot of my early years, and this is not really about the learning part of it, but more about how you, how one feels like they belong in their social circle. Like I had a really hard time fitting in, um, in my first few years. And then, you know, in addition to that, I was in an ESL program, um, because I had to learn English. And so I spent, you know, half the day separate from the class and my own kind of private tutorial with a Chinese teacher who would help mm -hmm. me kind of bridge the gap, right? The language gap. Um, mm -hmm. So that then also kept me distinct and apart from the other students. So I think I would say like the early, my, my, my early years in school were really about this feeling of um, alienation and trying to understand how I could fit in and trying, and trying so hard to assimilate. Um, right. And I think that probably influenced a lot of 
how I uh, ended up, you know, whatever choices I made as a teenager and adult, a lot of it was about um, the desire to normalize mm-hmm. and to fit in and assimilate. Um, mm-hmm. And I would argue that's probably a lot of how I approached my work in the theater as an adult. Um, that's I think I think those early years in, in school were pretty formative for me um, as yeah. far as shaping my worldview. Um, Did you get a sense that there was an awareness about your feelings of, of alienation from the school or teachers? Uh, you know, it's, I don't know, you know, I'm like mm-hmm. six. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really hard to, right. Cause I think when you're that young, you have no comprehension of what the adult mind is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I didn't, I just, uh, I just felt, um, I felt like my, my teachers were supportive, um, but oblivious. Right. And I also, I also didn't think I had, I don't think I had, um, the facilities and the tools to express myself in a way where I could voice my, my concern or alienation too. Right. There's a, and also, you know, I'm Chinese and, um, just culturally, uh, you know, we're not conditioned to speak up right when there's difficulty. So there's a culture of silence that's kind of ingrained in me culturally too. Um, Mm -hmm. So I found myself doing a lot of um, mimicry as a child. I would see what kids are doing, and I would just literally follow and copy people as a means of just like, yeah, behaviorally, I know what's going on. I understand what's happening. (laughs) Right. Yeah. What about college? How did your journey expand throughout undergraduate, graduate, you know, now including theater? I think think once I decided that the theater was going to be the thing I wanted to do, I just went all in but guys went all in um and it was hard because i feel like there's no there's no one way to learn how to make theater and i felt like a lot of my time was trying to play catch up culturally um you know and i i had a reason i mean i had a solid education at berkeley around theater but um you know, even just understanding like what legacy you're inheriting in the theater, right? understanding like, oh, this amount of Ibsen or this amount. I mean, it's, it was so Eurocentric, right? And a lot of my my undergrad training was largely Eurocentric theater. Like classical theater was considered Chekhov, Shakespeare, Ibsen, um, and like world theater was everything else. <laughs> like we never studied Asian theater as part of classical theater. It was always, you know. Uh, I, I don't know. It was, it was it was all Eurocentric work, and Shakespeare had a, its entire. It was an entire class on Shakespeare, an entire class on Chekhov, right? Um, and I felt like I never got that uh, that sense where it was like you never got an entire class on no theater. No theater was like two weeks of instruction, right? Um, and I, and and these are all things I'm realizing in like retrospect, um, but that my training in undergrad and to some degree in grad school too uh, is very much. Um, a kind of canonized Eurocentric look at, at what excellence looks like and what, you know, what, what success looks like and what does mastery look like. We'll be back with Desdemona later. Here's Kiki Dominguez. Hi Kiki. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So my name is Marquisha Dominguez. My pronouns are they, them. Um, but usually people around town know me as Kiki. And I am an artist, educator, and behavioral therapist in Seattle, Washington. 
I have recently started a podcast with the Mirror Stage Theater Company. So that's one of the things. Now I can add podcaster to my resume. And I have been acting, directing, and um, dramaturging in Seattle since about 2012. And I worked with Seattle Shakespeare for two years in on the Seattle Shakespeare tour. What else? I, I, my main focus now has been creating online classes through Seattle Theater Group, as well as through Seattle Children's Theater. So those have been my, my latest endeavors throughout all of this COVID-19 um, in-person restrictions. Amazing. Staying busy. Love to hear it. Surprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've been part of the statewide tour at Seattle Shakespeare Company for two years, right? Um, mm -hmm. Working as an actor, a stage manager. What are ways that you've seen that tour evolve and grow in your time with it? So, yeah. So the first year, it just seems like we were all babies. Like we didn't know. We were all very excited to be in the room and we didn't know what to expect. And it was everyone's first year on the tour. And so that was a big year of learning just how the tour operates, how we work with the touring manager, how we work with schools and just the different cycles of like what what happens and what goes on mm -hmm. and i really showed up at a time where they really nailed we're gonna have diversity in this room and that's not just you know one person of color that's everybody's a person of color and they're all different and it's all different shapes and sizes it's all different genders um and preferred pronouns it's all across the board different and then that, so that was the first year and then the second year when we had new cast members it still had that same feeling but we also got to collaborate with our uh, production team being I believe all people of color like even when everyone who came in that second year was all POC I believe on the production team and yeah just see, see these new materials and work on the newest the newest bilingual script that we had and the new like, dance and music that got to be incorporated. That seems like a big change. I will say the first year there wasn't too much like music aspect outside of recordings, but the second year we had dancing. We had, I was playing my guitar. Anuhea was playing their ukulele and the whole cast had, like a, a song that we were all singing. So it got really uh, collaborative there the second year. Mm, thank you. When you're out there um, on the field performing, educating, what are some ways that you've seen students affected or impacted by the work that you do, you and your ensemble? Mm -hmm. We had a lot of uh, our talkbacks were great. We had the opportunity to do talkbacks at almost every location. Sometimes it wasn't possible just because things get pushed. Timing doesn't always add up. But with with our talkbacks, we had a lot a chance to really connect with the students and have them tell us how they might have never seen this show before this or how they weren't interested in it but seeing people that look like them made them interested in these these shows or hearing it 
in Spanish, like how that would affect different kids in different ways, because they were either get the they would get it before when they when they weren't fully understanding something, and then it would just hit them in a different way when it would be in their in their first language. So that was a big one with with our Spanish English um, version of the Scottish play. Mm. Yeah. Why do you think that that impact happens? You know, for students of color when they when they go to something like Shakespeare and and get to see themselves on stage and hear their their natural tongue, why do you think that's so impactful? I think that that is so impactful because it, it goes back to the conversation about representation and access. So if I'm only ever seeing this one, if like Romeo and Juliet, if I'm only ever seeing Romeo and Juliet done by cisgendered white people, then I, <laughs> Kiki Dominguez, uh, uh, Afro-Latinx, non-binary individual, might not connect to it. Might say, well, that's not for me. That must not be for me. But then having it accessible in a format that seems like it's more for me or for my community helps me or helps the other people realize like, oh, I guess this is for me. I guess Shakespeare could be for me. Because I think Shakespeare is one of those things that gets hoity-toity really quickly. And and it, it's it's just a barrier. And I think that it can be a barrier for a lot of people because they like learned it in their high school class when they like had to read it out loud and it just caused them a lot of anxiety. So they never looked at it again. But there are all these beautiful stories that are interesting and fascinating and relatable on so many different levels. So giving, giving people an opportunity to connect with it and actually connect with it, see themselves, hear themselves represented, I think really changes, changes the experience for people all around. Absolutely. And I think that there's so much power in doing things like Shakespeare through a bilingual lens, right? To give voice to uh, a voiceless community that can, that then shifts uh, that perspective of power in a room mm -hmm. of an audience, right? Um, is that ever something that like students talked about or that you saw or that maybe you experienced? I would say we, we would see it a lot. Like we, it wasn't brought up too, too often in like talkbacks, but you could sense it in the rooms and it would be like the biggest shift when we would say something in Spanish and you would just hear certain kids like vocally respond and you could just see other people being like, I don't know. I don't get that. I don't know what that is. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being in a space and being like, I didn't get that thing, but that's okay. Cause the, the, the person around me who usually doesn't get to speak Spanish or hear Spanish, they got it. Mm -hmm. Um, so just having those different, those different responses were, were very interesting. Cause yeah, it is about a power shift. And that was not something that like I thought about before this, but it was just always great to, to hear the kids get excited. Like as a theater artist, it's just great to hear the audience. I know that so many audiences are like, you have to be quiet and only clap at the end and all this stuff. But I am not that person. I want to hear people responding. I want to hear people get the joke. And when people would get the joke in Spanish, it would make me so happy because I was like, that's why we're doing this. That right there was for you. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. <laughs> How were different demographics in the communities that you visited affected by that? Was there a difference from 
you know, from Seattle proper to rural Washington? Well, it's, it's interesting because sometimes when we were in rural Washington was we would have be doing our shows that had Spanish in them and they would be a lot of Spanish speaking students in the room. Um, but when we would come to Seattle, I was going to say we, we would mainly do R&J, which is not bilingual. It was the... 90 minute version and they, that was always the the conversation of oh well I've, they're always studying rnj so someone will probably want to do this and right it's, it's part of the curriculum <laughs> exactly so i'm just thinking about i'm just thinking about the differences of those two performances mm-hmm. and it's like the scottish play and rnj are two very different stories like <laughs> and are are like the whole experience on either end is so different. I'm just thinking like we're in, in the uh, RNJ, we're in more classical attire with the swords and we are fighting how they did in classical times. But, you know, with Scottish play, we were, it's a very, very violent play <laughs> and there's daggers and all this scary imagery. And then you have the Spanish. So it's like, that was just such an exciting thing to do and to be a part of that I think that people were just super excited to be there and to witness it and be a part of it, even if they couldn't always understand what was going on. In terms of like, you know, the work that feeds your soul as a BIPOC, does that align with it? Work like you experienced doing Mackers and this specific production of Mackers? Yes. I, I, the, the work we did on Mackers, it was a lot of collaborating and it was a lot of uh, experiencing Shakespeare in a way that I had not before. So when I have been in previous Shakespeare shows or worked on, um, cause I, I did the curriculum for green stage for a couple of years. So like working on that material, it was always very traditional project, project done in a certain way. It the and with our production of Mackers, like we were the witches and we were like in a dance circle. So we got to like come up with what we do in this dance circle and we got to go with our crazy ideas and really help collaborate. And that isn't something that I've really experienced with Shakespeare before this experience. And that's so important because it's it's part of the inherent nature of our work, right? to collaborate mm-hmm. yeah and and with rnj because like don't get me wrong i just want to say for the record like rnj is right up there in the top favorite plays <laughs> <laughs> so i was totally excited to be a part of it mm-hmm. but because it is the staple show that seattle shakespeare knows will probably be picked up because they're always teaching that material in school there were a lot of rules around it there was a lot of this is the same blocking from last year. This is the same script from the last like 10 years. This is the same. Everything is exactly the same. These are the same. Uh, we got new costumes. I will say they were beautiful, but like the sets the same, the blocks the same, everything rigid, rigid, rigid. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it did feel like we were a little bit more constrained with our abilities to be creative in that. Mm. Thank you, Kiki, for your insights and your time. 
Yeah, thank you. I'm glad that we could chat about this. Here's Desdemona again. Moving into your role as an educator, how did these feelings of alienation, cultural imprinting, you know, these ideas of what success looks like and assimilation, how did that shape and evolve things like your curriculum or just being in a classroom leading students? When Richard E.T. White gave my, I mean, he, he, he I would say I, I owe so much of my career in Seattle to his um, advocacy and his sponsorship in some ways of my work. Uh, and I, and, and when, and when I was offered a teaching position there um, to teach directing, um, part of me was like, I kind of want to shake things up, you know, mm-hmm. like I, and maybe this is me because I, I just generally feel that when you're teaching in theater, like there's no, there's no right way to teach theater. There's no right way to like learn theater or or to learn directing. And I, and I don't know, maybe it was intentional, but I remember thinking, okay, whatever Kathleen's doing, I'm going to do the opposite. Whatever, whatever Sheila's doing, I'm going to do the opposite. Whatever the fact, whatever core faculty is doing, I want to be that rogue adjunct (laughs) oh captain my captain i want to be that rogue adjunct that tells you you can do the opposite you know what i mean i was like weirdly interested in being disruptive Mm -hmm. because i feel like there was something right i I also just generally when it comes to higher education and the arts like there's something that's kind of counterintuitive to that like we grow as artists through disruption and failure right and and um if i can if i can just keep telling students like oh the way you're doing it totally different ways to do it, totally opposite ways to do it, you know? And maybe that's just, you know, me kind of owning the fact that my owning my kind of, um, you know, internalized outsiderness. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that was something that I, that I think I've, um, didn't realize I was doing on purpose, but I think was probably doing on purpose, um, was wanting to come in and be like, all right, uh, you know, in the world of education, I've always felt a little outsidery. So let's like go all out with being outsidery, right? Like I will, I will teach you the dark arts of the theater, and we'll do things <laughs> backward. We'll do things unconventionally. We'll do things the way that's like maybe vigilante and breaking the rules. Mm. And I'm deeply skeptical, and yet I understand, right? Deeply skeptical of institutional education, and yet I understand that there's a necessity for it. Um, but we need one person to be like, listen, let's try to break it. <laughs> Absolutely. How do you hope that uh, teaching the dark arts, um, how do you hope that impacts the students that you have? I mean, at the very least, I hope it teaches them a sense of autonomy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and it's one thing, is, if it's one I mean, I'm sure you know this, you took my class, but like, you know, I... I always tell the directors, like, dude, this is your class, right? You lead this. I don't, I'm, I'm the person who will give you feedback. But at the end of the day, like, you're in charge of your rehearsals. I'm going to tell you how to rehearse it. I'm not going to tell you how to do your grand plan, how to do anything. I think you need to practice owning your choices, owning the difficulties, or and owning the successes and failures, too, in the process. Mm-hmm. And I think on some level, that can be misconstrued as kind of negligent, Right. It's like, oh, you're just gonna sit there and not teach. I'm like, no, I'm teaching. <laughs> but there's, right? Like, there's, I mean, what's? The, I mean, how how do you teach? How do you teach leadership if you can't let them lead? Because mm. we're always valuing collaboration, um, which I think is sometimes misunderstood to be compliance or mm. agreement. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to, right. That, so I, I, I try to, if I can, without being jerks, right. Don't be a jerk, but be productive and difficult. Right. Mm-hmm. Was that what John Lewis said? Was it John Lewis that said like, he had a great quote about being a difficult person, make good trouble. Right. He was like, it's, it, you want to get into good trouble is what John Lewis would say. And, um, there's something about, I think, uh, um, this idea of, of being difficult for me, right. To, like to stir some shit up, right. You want to stir things up, challenge conventional. Cause what you don't want to do is fall into the trouble of getting complacent. Right. And I think especially in education and the world of as, as an educator, if you're given a syllabus and you teach that syllabus over and over and over five years later, like what are you doing? That's new, right? You fall into a reliable pattern of security. And I think that's, that gets dangerous. And there's, I think there's a reason why during the pandemic, the entire education system is flipping out. We've become so standardized that we can't cope with disruption. Um, and of course, and, and in some ways, of course, education should be secure because we don't want to be chaotic when we're, te- when we're teaching young people. That's not great either. But there's got to be a balance. There has to be a way where you can create a structure and a system of security and then disrupt it so that your students can develop a sense of grit and resilience. Mm. Right. Like, how do, you, how do you create a safe place to fail? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Des, for your time and your insights. No, yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Up next... Caitlin Honig. Hello, Caitlin. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, so I'm a teacher at Franklin High School in Seattle. I just started my seventh year working there. I teach language arts and human geography, and I've loved every minute of it. I'm a big fan of Franklin. Um, I got my master's in teaching at UW, and before that, I studied English and theater at Virginia Tech. Um, and I grew up all over the country cause my dad was in the Navy. So I visited like 45 of the 50 States. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's five more to go. Right. When we can travel again. <laughs> and when I'm not teaching, I do spend my time mostly reading and writing and watching a lot of movies and television with my husband, Brian and our two cats. Um, and I guess like the big takeaway of all this is that I'm really interested in storytelling, like fiction and nonfiction and, consuming and creating. And I just really like how stories are able to like both present new information so we can learn from people who are different from us, but also um, they connect people who like we can find common ground in our shared human experience. Mm. What does the conversation look like when Franklin decides what outside programming to bring into the school? Who has the agency and, and what is that process like? Yeah, so decision making with a, around a public school can be pretty complicated, but I'm really grateful that our administrative team really values uh, bringing in expertise from the community. And so even though there are like hoops you have to jump through as far as paperwork and whatnot, um, if, a, if a teacher comes forward or any adult in the building, honestly, it doesn't have to be a teacher, um, and they have a connection or an idea they're excited about, uh, usually uh, administration will will support it and help make that happen. Oh, wow. It's great to hear that you have so much support from your administration. Oh, yeah, for sure. What about like the demographic of your school? Does that affect any of the decision making? Yeah, I think that's really present. Um, I don't know how much information you've looked up or if your listeners will know about the demographics of teachers and students in Seattle. But 
Um, so 89%, I looked this up recently, 89% of teachers in all of Washington state are white. And it's not much better in Seattle. 81% of our teachers are white, but 52% of students in all of Seattle public schools are students of color. And in Franklin in particular, it's about 90%. Uh, so we end up having, having a lot of white educators teaching students who are not white. We, at least I feel this way, and I think a lot of my colleagues do too, that we want more representation. And so like, I don't think there's anything particularly special about me and my take on language arts. Um, so if I'm going to bring in people from outside um, to show like, hey, this is what you can do with poetry, or this is what you can do with live theater or music, um, I do want to be finding people who look like my students or maybe had a shared experience with my students just so that they can see that like this is an option for them, maybe as a career, but also maybe just as like, this is something that can bring you joy. Um, so yeah, I do think demographics plays a pretty big role in who we decide to partner with. Mm. With school happening right now and, and the pandemic still happening, what are substitutes that are coming in for these programs? Are there substitutes? What are, you know, how are things being done differently at the school? Yeah, that's one of our biggest hurdles right now. I think a lot of teachers kind of feel like we're all just treading water, trying to stay afloat with stuff we've done before, or maybe making completely new stuff. Um, so I, I don't know if many teachers have prioritized bringing in outside experts right now. I think a lot of people just kind of have this hope that this is going to be an off semester or an off year, and then we can get back to some sort of relative normal or something. But I do think a lot of people have been this year um, reanalyzing the texts they're using. So I'm teaching 10th grade this year, which is world lit. Um, and his like previously world lit classes have had, you know, one or two texts from Europe. And this year we were like, you know what? No, like it's world lit. We're going to focus on hitting every continent other than Europe. They'll probably get some European authors their senior year or whatever. Um, I think that's been happening in classes all around my building. I don't necessarily want to speak for all buildings. Um, and what kind of text we use. So incorporating like podcasts or television or, you know, stand-up comedy or even, uh, you know, like poetry. Just like the idea that a text is something beyond a traditional novel. Um, mm. I think that's been something a lot of us have been doing. It's hard because there are confines from the district, understandably so, about like you don't want just anyone popping into um, the like virtual classroom. And so so that's been something that's really tricky. Um, I hope we come up with better solutions. Well, it sounds like, you know, jumping in, you're you're figuring stuff out. I mean, it's it's a great opportunity too, from from what it sounds like to explore mediums that were not being explored before. Yes. And I also think as much as it's, you know, like the world right now kind of seems like it's on fire and there's so many terrible things happening because we're being forced into this school can't look anything like it's looked before. There's freedom to, well, then let's just try anything right now. And so I teach an AP course as well, AP Human Geography. And I think a lot of times there's kind of a focus on trying to prepare students for that big test in May. But like, how do you do a multiple choice test virtually and, you know, guarantee that people aren't looking up answers? So my Chris and I have been like, you know what, let's throw out multiple choice tests this year. And we're just going to go switch to almost all project-based learning and um, written assessments, which 
have historically been a lot more success successful, especially with students of color. You know, that's not really related to art, but it is related to teaching and considering who our students are. Mm, that's amazing. Um, with the pandemic forcing a reinvention of how you teach and the content in your classes, what do you think is holding us back from using this as an opportunity to change the framework in schools to be equitable? Oh, I have thoughts on this and I'm a little, I'm like a little worried about, uh, how, how radical I can be on this. Um, I have you listened to a different podcast and the New York times just put out nice white parents. Are you familiar with it? I am not familiar with it. Um, it's great. I recommend listening to it. It's about five hours. Um, but it it does kind of analyze how essentially a stakeholder in the community who has a lot of power and influence are parents, but specifically white parents. It's specifically looking at uh, the podcast looks at integration in New York City, which is one of those things where a lot of times when we think about integration, a lot of Americans jump to what was going on in the South. But uh, schools in liberal cities like New York City and Seattle are, you know, just as segregated, essentially, you know, because of de facto segregation. When you look at people who have pushed for integration, when white parents push for integration, it's often because they want their children exposed to diversity. Um, but when parents of color have pushed for integration, it actually doesn't have anything to do with exposure. Like they don't necessarily want their kids to go to school with white kids. Um, but it's more about they see the inequality or the inequity of the schools right now, where schools that have are in historically black and brown communities and neighborhoods don't have the same access to resources, the same quality of materials. And integration is a way to get their kids better access to those things. And so um, all this to say, I think if there's a perspective of I need to guarantee that my kid always gets the best opportunity, which is a very natural desire for a parent. Um, if you are a parent that your child is already in a position of privilege um, and you continue to work toward making sure your kid keeps having an advantage for their individual success, it's going to continue to have inequity in the school system. And so part of it is we as a whole society need to prioritize, you know, equity and, and giving students and communities that need more, they should be getting more. And that sometimes does mean there's a compromise of it might not benefit you or your child individually because of, you know, everything else that's going on in society. But I think a secondary part of it is, you know, school functions the way it has always functioned. And we are charged with a very difficult task as educators of balancing. We want to prepare our students for the world they're going to enter as adults. Also want them to go out and potentially live in a society that we think is like ideal or like change the world, right? When people talk about things like high stakes testing, you know, um, if you're talking about writing, and you have to pass a writing test to graduate, and you have a child who maybe wants to go to college because they're trying to pursue a higher paying job, and that student maybe speaks in a dialect like African-American vernacular English. And there's a lot of evidence, like linguists have studied this for years, that African-American vernacular English, or some people know it as Ebonics, um, is rule-governed, and students who speak in AAVE 
are following the rules of their dialect. Um, there's no reason to think that that's any better or worse. Um, but specifically, it's not worse than people who speak maybe closer to standard American English. And yet, English teachers feel the need to um, have students who maybe speak with this dialect learn to write in standard American English because it's like, well, when you leave, there are judgmental people out there who don't know about the complex history and linguistics behind all this. And we don't want to like make it so that you can't pursue those opportunities because you write a cover letter and someone assumes stuff about you that they shouldn't assume about you. You know, in an ideal world, it wouldn't matter how you write. It matters what you're saying, right? You know, and that's like not really the society we live in necessarily, which I think is really um, difficult. And I think they know that, right? My students know so much more about the world than I did when I was their age. They care so much about making it better. And they're, they're really upset by injustices and what's, what's wrong. And so I feel like actually Gen Z has given me a lot of hope as they get older, I don't think that passion is going to go away. So I am hopeful that our society will be better in the future. I do think it's interesting that from a standardized test perspective, uh, what we seem to care about are things like getting the right answer and doing this the right way and thinking about academics a certain way. And we don't necessarily test on skills like cooperation or uh, empathy, right? Like skills that are actually very important to uh, adult life and work, and which are things that I think oftentimes students of color are strong in. Like there's a focus of on community and sticking together and supporting each other. And so I don't really know what that would look like on a standardized test of like how do you assess someone's ability to work in a group. But I think it's noticeable that that's not something required to graduate. Yeah, it's so true. Just just the way that you're framing it of like, it's it's so interconnected to the society that you're going to jump into, right? And that framework of like, what is excellence? What is the thing that's going to propel you forward and, and help you navigate that society, right? Right. Yeah. And I think it's important, especially for white people in positions of influence, I don't necessarily want to say power, but maybe power too. To, to think about this stuff they maybe haven't had to think about before, you know, were, uh, was how you were assessed in school something you were more inclined to already be good at just because of the way, like, everything around you was structured, you know, and you think that's not fair. How can we change that? Um, it goes beyond just education, but it's very connected to education. Mm. Thank you, Caitlin, for your insights and your time. That's all for today. This series is a fundraiser for Seattle Shakespeare Company's educational department. If you enjoyed this content and would like to learn more about Seattle Shakespeare Company's educational programs, or if you're able to support us with a donation, please visit seattleshakespeare.org slash education celebration. We'll be back next week with another episode, so subscribe wherever you get this podcast from.